0: Plus a bit. Anyway, we've, over 2018, 19 and 20, we broke the book of Acts up into three parts to preach our way through. And so this is our first and our final leg running our way through the book of Acts. So this is where we're up to. And yes, I did finish with saying we will continue what Paul actually said next week. So let's open up and ask God for his help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your life-giving Word, that not only tells you uh, tell us about who you are and what you have done for us, but Lord, you have given us a record of how your earliest followers have responded to you in the value that they have placed on you, on salvation, and on making that known to others. Lord, we pray as we hear from your Word this morning that we would be challenged, we would be changed to become more like your Son that we would follow you with all of our hearts, that we would be faithful and good stewards of that which you have entrusted to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I remember once hearing a story, and unfortunately when you hear these stories, you don't know if they're true or not, so I'm just putting that out there. It might be true, might not be true. Of a young man who was at university in Georgetown University in the United States, he was part of the football team, but... He wasn't a particularly great player so he didn't play very often but he was highly respected because of his character. In particular, the coach loved watching him walk arm in arm with his father as he would go to attend some of the games. Unfortunately, after some time the father passed away with a heart attack and the boy took a little bit of time away from footy and then he came back to the coach when he was ready to play again and says Coach, this week... I want to be in the starting lineup. I think it's what Dad would want. Now the coach, in a softer moment, agreed to do so, but it did also preface by saying, I can't guarantee you might only just be on for a couple of the plays. Come that particular game day, the coach did exactly what he promised. He was there in the opening lineup, but that young fella was never taken off the field because he was playing better than he's ever played before. Afterwards, the coach says, I've never seen you play like this. Where did did this all come from? The boy responded, when you saw me walking arm in arm with my father, it was because he was blind. Today was the first day that he saw me play. Now, whether the story was true and whether or not, even when you go to be with Jesus, you can actually see what's going on, I don't know. But as far as the story was concerned, in the mind of that young fella, he believed that his father was watching and that changed everything. He wanted to, to make him proud. He wanted to bring his father. He wanted his father to be rejoicing as he watched him. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, it would be so easy to ask, why didn't Paul just give up? It just seemed so hard, one knocked down after the other. And I think there's two key answers to that. One is that Paul had a deep love for God. He knew he was watching. He wanted to bring glory and joy to his master. But also he had a deep love for people. He would go to, there was no cost that was too much for the joy of being able to share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save a people. Sure, from a worldly perspective, you might say, well, Paul, lost more than he gained. But from the far more important and from the eternal gospel-centered perspective, he gained much. And in comparison, he lost so little. So today we're resuming where we left off halfway through 2019 in Acts. We'll see Paul receive more opposition. As we work our way through to the end of the book, we'll see him constantly being on trial But one thing you will not see change, Paul continues to proclaim Christ because he knows there is salvation in no other name. As we work our way through the passage we've had read, we're going to see good news, bad news, a plan to combat the bad news, the contrast between opposition from Jews and protection from the Romans, setting the record straight, and why all of this matters. When we went through the very first part of chapter 21, we saw two occasions people had warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but he went. It seems that the the background to their warning is it seemed that they were persuaded that he was going to be persecuted if he went there. But upon Paul's arrival, things got off to a pretty good start. It says, and he met with the brothers and they gladly rejoiced with him. And then the next day he meets up with the elders of the Jerusalem church, James and all of the other leaders, and he's able to communicate to them all of the things which God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And again, they all glorified God. And not only does Paul have opportunity to share about what God has been doing amongst the Gentiles, then the Jerusalem church leaders respond and say, look, thousands of Jews have believed as well. Now this is a great rejoicing, isn't it? Paul can say, one by one it actually says. Like he doesn't just give a broad overview. One by one, Paul explains what God did, not what Paul did, what God has done amongst the Gentiles. They didn't get dr- dr- tired of it thinking, oh, come on, you that's enough. The joy of hearing about what God has done to save people doesn't wear thin. And they recognise it as God has done it, the same God that you and I belong to if we're followers of Jesus and can work also through us, just as he did through Paul. So you've got Jews, Gentiles all responding to the grace and salvation offer of Jesus Christ. Think, man, this is this is the best news there ever could be. But it takes a bit of a turn for the worst in verses twenty and twenty one. After James says many thousands here amongst the Jews are those who have believed. He adds, they're all zealous for the law and they've been told about you, that is Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. So it takes a bit of a turn in those two verses. Wow, thousands of Jews have responded and believed. They're all zealous for the law. Oh, and by the way, they've all been told that you you, you tell people not to obey the law or any of the Jewish customs. Welcome to Jerusalem. Have a nice time. I reckon if I was Paul, I'd probably be a little bit furious at this point in time. You think, okay, so you guys are the leaders of the church here in the city. And whether or not they're zealous for the law is because of their teaching or not, we can't hold them responsible or not. But they all seem to be, think that Paul is opposed to all of these things and they hate Paul and he's like, and you guys have said nothing. You receive Paul greatly, you rejoice in what God has done through him amongst the Gentiles Yet you know people are opposed to him, saying false things about him, and have said nothing. Well, The Jerusalem elders did have a plan, and they filled Paul in on this plan how they're going to deal with this conflict between Paul, as here, and amongst the many of the converts they're not a big fan because they've heard wrong things about him. Instead of defending Paul while he's absent, they say, I demand you prove to them that it's not true. Again, if I was Paul, I'm not that sure that I'd be excited about the plan. And it's not even like they say, Paul, here's an idea we have. What do you think? Give us some feedback on it. What it says is, do therefore what we tell you. We've got four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. They've been told that you're opposed to Jewish customs, they've been told you're opposed to the law. You go prove them wrong by partaking in them and supporting others to do the same. Specifically, there were four men who were under a vow which appears to be a Nazarite vow, which we according to Numbers chapter 6, they would not drink any alcohol, they would not cut their hair, they would not take anything that was of the grape. It was just a way of kind of saying, we are setting ourselves aside for God during this period of time. And they're asking Paul not only to encourage these men in this vow, but to join with them, to purify himself, according to Numbers chapter 19, Paul has been travelling in Gentile land. He would be required to cleanse himself for a period of seven days so that when he goes to the temple, he doesn't defile the temple. And then in addition to all of that, and presenting these other guys as well, he needs to pay for all of their expenses. That is, for their offerings that they would need to bring as they come to the end of their time of their vow before they finally get their haircut to bring it to an end. And then to all gather in the temple to present Paul himself, these other four men, amongst the people who don't like him. What could possibly go wrong? It might seem surprising at first, but Paul actually, without hesitation, goes along with the plan. He took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them which of course Paul had paid for. Now we'll come back later to the question of whether Paul was unwise. Some are even going so far to say that Paul was sinful or contradicting his own teaching. We'll return to that question a bit later on. But for now we need to know that what Paul was asked to do Without hesitation, he accommodated and he went along with it. Now, did this plan of the leaders of the Jerusalem church resolve the tension? Well, let's see how things work out. As soon as you get in the text, it's pretty clear how it worked out. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. There's a whole lot of things that are being communicated there. Firstly, you need to realise that this uproar hasn't actually even come from the locals. It's not even the Jerusalem Jews, it's Jews from Asia. When we went back in some of the previous chapters we saw how some of the, the Jews from Antioch followed Paul to other places and stirred up the crowds against Paul there and it may even be the same group doing the same thing again. But look at their claims. They've actually gone even further than what James and the leaders had said. Like James and the leaders says they told them to forsake Moses, circumcision and the customs. These guys are saying, no, they Paul is teaching everyone, everywhere against the law, against Jews and against the temple and on top of that claiming that he's defiled the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. That's a pretty big claim. Well, we're told there in verse 29, they've seen Paul with Trophimus, who is an Ephesian, in other words, a Gentile doesn't say he was in the temple, but I think they've just assumed, Paul was with Trophimus, therefore he must have brought him in with him. But there's plenty of reasons why this is a ridiculous claim, these things they're saying about Paul. Firstly, why is Paul there? Paul is in the temple because he has just spent seven days purifying himself according to Jewish customs so that when he comes to the temple that he won't defile it And their accusations, he's here speaking against Jews, Jewish customs, and the temple, and defiling the temple. Paul was going out of his way to appease and accommodate the Jewish concerns, yet, here they're saying he's doing completely the opposite. And thirdly, Paul's not an idiot. He's a smart man and he knows his big writing as you go into the inner sanctuary it says in both Greek and Latin if you're a Gentile, if you come in here you're going to die. Do you really think he's going to be bringing Gentiles into the inner sanctuary in the temple? But as we've all learnt in life people don't need to actually get their facts right in order to stir people up to get on board with whatever they say. It happens all of the time. And it's fair that they did get traction just as they did in their other cities. Luke probably exaggerates a little bit when it says all of the city was in uproar. But certainly there was strong opposition to Paul. It was chaotic in there. It was a bit like Chalora Woolworths down the, down the toilet paper aisle. <laughs> For those who've seen that ad of the women fighting over it. Not an ad video. Oh, that'd be a terrible ad. Don't suggest a Kleenex, don't use use that one. So they dragged Paul out, shut the gates, and says they were seeking to kill him. Tensions grew pretty quickly, so much for this great plan of the Jewish leaders. Unfortunately, chaotic events were not uncommon in the temple. They had Roman soldiers there in the Antonio Fortress in the north western part there of the temple wall and it appears between them and the tribune who arrived was enough to at least stop them from killing Paul. But still it was so chaotic they were unable to get the facts. Like they just couldn't hear the full side of the story so they had to remove Paul and to give you an idea of how chaotic it was when they got to the steps they had to carry Paul in order to protect him from the Jews who are opposed to him. It's almost a strange picture, isn't it? The Romans have got no reason particularly to protect a Christian. It's the Jews who want to kill Paul and the Romans who are protecting him. While the Jews were shouting, away with him, just as they had done with Jesus in Luke 23 and John 19. But Paul has an opportunity to set the record straight. Verses 37 to 40 are quite a big turn in the events of this day. He goes from being a guy who's dead set, set on being lynched by the whole group who are there, to actually having a commanding audience that he gets to speak before us as a public speaker. But as Paul's brought to the barracks, he speaks to the tribune and says, can I be, have an opportunity to speak? And through that process, we learn that the tribune and the soldiers, they haven't got a clue who Paul is. They're like, do you speak Greek? Are you this Egyptian guy who caused trouble in the past? Now, the original people that Luke wrote this to would have understood who this Egyptian guy was. Luckily, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us a little bit about this Egyptian who he refers to. He was a guy who gathered a whole group around himself. He went to the Mount of Olives around about 54 AD and he said to the people, at my command, the walls will come down and we're going to seize this city. The governor, Felix, hears about this, sends out soldiers, arrests a number of them. The Egyptian guy got away and now as Paul is being captured, they're thinking, ah, this must be that guy come back to cause trouble again. Instead, Paul points him to the facts. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Roman citizen. And not just any Roman citizen, a Roman citizen from the city of Tarsus. Now, there's still some areas today where a particular area from your, where you're from, people either hold you in higher or lower regard, whether they should or shouldn't. Tarsus was a well-respected area because of its history and all sorts of aspects about it. So much that the tribune was compelled, it was like, yeah, I will let you speak before this crowd. Then with a wave of a hand, this crowd of people that moments ago wanted him dead were a captive audience, as Paul had opportunity to speak, the contents of which we'll hear about next week. But what do we do with a passage like this? I want to put it to you, there are two things that I want us to take away from it. One, I think, is the central reason why Luke, over these next coming chapters, focuses so much on the Jewish tension towards Paul and the protection provided by the Romans. And secondly, because things happen in this passage that cause us to ask questions about the nature of ministry and how far is too far in terms of accommodating other people. Over these next few chapters, we're just going to see Luke really slows down the narrative. He focuses in a lot on how Paul is represented before the Romans, what the Romans say about him, particularly the high officials. And I think he's seen, trying to do this a way of showing how Paul is vindicated as a Christian by Roman authorities, that being a Christian isn't illegal. I think he wants them to encourage future persecuted Christians how you respond. If facing persecution, it's actually fair to say that between here and the end of the book of Acts, Paul doesn't actually get to move around freely again. But everywhere he is, whether it's before a a trial, in prison, wherever he is, he continues to proclaim Jesus just as he would do if he was traveling freely. As persecuted Christians later on would come to read this, they would be absolutely convinced no one would go through this unless they genuinely had seen Jesus risen, as Paul had claimed to have a resurrection encounter with Jesus. No one would continue like this unless Jesus and his salvation really is worth it. They could understand that all persecution they might ever come across is exactly as Paul said, a momentary light affliction preparing a far greater weight of glory but that second question is where's the line between fitting in to your audience and when does it become compromising to the message or sinful because there are a lot of people who look at this passage and actually say Paul was either unwise maybe even sinful or contradicting his own teaching, particularly his writing to the church in Galatia? What do you think? By Paul encouraging, partaking in the Jewish customs, has he compromised his ministry by his method? I don't believe that he has. I don't believe he's contradicted his own advice either. I think it's worth noting in Acts 18 verse 18... Paul himself took a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was just something that the people did as a way of saying, I'm setting myself aside exclusively to focus on God. And that's a good thing. For example, a lot of people might be doing Lent at this point in time. If that's their purpose is is to have time aside from things in order to focus on God, then that in and of itself is a good thing. In both cases, the Bible would not command or require a Christian to do either of the above things. But anything that someone might do to focus more on God is a good thing. It's no different to someone saying, oh, I'm taking a break from social media for a while I'm finding it's distracting me with God. Good thing. Not commanded, but it's a good thing if that's your motive. Now, I probably presume that Paul wasn't that excited by James' proposal. But was he contradicting what he says? I think the best person to answer that is Paul. I think there's two things we need to know about Paul. Firstly, we need to understand and be challenged by how passionate Paul was for the salvation of people who didn't yet know Jesus. There's probably no clearer expression of that than in Romans 9 verses 1 to 3 where he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ I am not lying, my conscience bears witness to the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. They're not minor terms. Great, Not just general sorrow, great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. And what causes him great sorrow and unceasing anguish? I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's how passionate Paul was to see people brought out of, headed towards the consequences for their own sin, to see them saved into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I would willingly suffer an eternity in hell if that meant that others would come to be saved to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Where's that passion gone in the church? We would say, I would do anything at any cost to myself if it meant that I would see others here and come to respond to faith in Jesus Christ. Sadly, so often we hear things more along the lines of, but they're not going to be interested. I tried it once and the person didn't respond nicely at all. It's hard, I'm not very good at it. Or in other words, what they're saying is it requires or it costs me more than what I think it's worth. Really? A minor inconvenience is greater than the joy of someone being brought out of the kingdom of darkness headed towards their own, them bearing for themselves the punishment for their own sin, having opportunity to be saved from that as Jesus has borne that punishment on the cross on our behalf. The very same thing that the Bible tells us, angels in heaven rejoice over every single one who repents and turns to Christ. Remember once having a conversation with a Christian leader here in Toowoomba, talking about how God has called us to where we live, places we work and whatever else, because he has called us to be his witnesses, his missionaries in those areas to reach people for Christ. And this person said... I haven't got time for that. A Christian leader. Church in Toowoomba. Paul just simply couldn't comprehend how any Christian would not be burdened by the eternal state of every single person around them, not just even the ones that you'd like. I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. And because it is so worth it, Paul's like, I'll take whatever cost it is to myself. I will give up things that I don't need to give up. I'll do things I don't need to do if that means I have opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Did Paul contradict his own teaching about how to deal with these things? I don't think so. This is the same Paul who wrote about this topic in 1 Corinthians 9 saying, even though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as those under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's words, uh, when it comes to ministry to the Jews, I became like the Jews. Now, I think it's important you realise he says he became like the Jews. He didn't say he became a Jew. Sometimes this passage is very poorly interpreted to say of whoever you're trying to reach become exactly like them. That's not what Paul said at all. When Paul says he became like a Jew, what he meant is he was willing to do things that were pleasing in the sight of Jews that were not evil, but that he didn't require to do so that there'd be nothing offensive or he would prevent himself from doing something that he was actually free to do, but for the sake of causing the offence, he would willingly choose not to do it. He wasn't saying that amongst the Jews, I deny Christ is the Messiah, and I depend upon my works of the law to make me save. He wasn't doing that. But he was saying of things that he's free to either do or not do in the sight of God, he would do what was pleasing in the sight, that they might not be a hindrance to those who he is trying to reach even in this case, where Paul understood that Jesus was the fulfilment of the temple, even though he he therefore knew that the temple and its place was coming to an end, he still partook of the purification that he would not be seen to be defiling the temple. Not because he had to, but because he didn't want to create a hindrance to those who he was hoping to reach. I remember on one occasion Paul says, If it's going to be a hindrance to the gospel going out, I will happily never eat meat again. I reckon that's the biggest claim Paul ever made. I love my meat, but I'd happily say I'd go vegan. If that meant that people are going to come to know Christ, I would go vegan. I'd hate to go vegan, but I'd happily do it for that that particular purpose. And when we hear these words of Paul, we think, God, give us a heart for the loss that bleeds like that. That we would have a deep anguish and sorrow for those who do not yet know Jesus. Like we say we've received such a great salvation. If it's so great, why don't we want them to hear it? One that has such a deep heart for the lost and so little concern for my own comfort. Paul lived to bring glory to his God and Saviour who was watching him, he wanted him to receive joy and honour and glory. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be exactly the same. We should revel, we should rejoice that we have received his gracious offer of salvation. That we should want to see others come to know why it's so important that Jesus Christ died on a cross. That our heavenly father who is watching, would be glorified in all things. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we realise how easily we can be distracted in this world. Sometimes by things that are not overly all that important at all. Lord, forgive us at times when we have given reasons why we do not talk to you about those to those who don 't know you that are really quite petty in comparison to the, the eternal urgency of the gospel. But Lord, we also give you praise and thanks that the same God who is' at work in and through Paul to see so many of the Gentiles come to faith. And also through James and the the leaders of the Jerusalem church to see so many Jews come to place their trust in Jesus is the same God whom we know who is working in and through your people through the same word of Jesus Christ the same gospel which is the power of God for salvation. And Lord, we pray that you might be pleased to work in and through us and that we might faithfully serve you and be good stewards of your gospel we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.